0: have always been interested in understanding the world around them. So they constructed observatories, locations used for observing terrestrial and celestial events. Indeed, it is even suspected that the ancient Neolithic sites such as Newgrange and in particular Stonehenge may have been observatories for astronomical phenomena and not just ceremonial burial sites.
1: Today, observatories carry out a wide range of scientific measurements and research. In this episode we'll explore Valentia Observatory in County Kerry, which is on Ireland's Atlantic coast, and we'll discuss its storied history, its significance to the Irish climate record, and its role in improving our understanding of our atmosphere, the environment, and the inner workings of our planet. Joining us today is Met Aaron's senior climatologist and former Valentia chief scientist, Keith Lampkin. Keith, thank you very much for joining us today. It's great to have you in with us. Um, Keith, you're the senior climatologist with Aaron at the moment. How did you get into weather?
2: Thanks, Noel. How did I get into weather? Wow, that's a that's a story. Uh, I guess I started off back, I did an undergrad in experimental physics, which is kind of a mix between the, all the equations and the maths, the, how you, uh, the atmosphere and I guess the universe works, but also a lot of hands-on equipment-based stuff as well. So um, so that kind of set me up for a good background. And then I guess I went on to do a master's in supercomputers, which are the type of big computers that we use to uh, to model environmental systems and that kind of thing as well. And I guess the, between the two of them, that kind of gave me the perfect background to to be the lead scientists down at Valencia but it took me quite a while to kind of actually get around to getting there
0: Yeah so what led you down the path um, to Valencia Observatory
2: uh, Well at first um, like many people do I finished college I didn't really know what to do uh, so I went off around the world for a while Uh, And then when I came back and I started looking for a job, uh, I actually got offered a job as an advanced warhead technician uh, overseas, which turned out I had the perfect background for the kind of hands-on blow stuff up, but then the computational experience to try and blow it up better. I didn't end up taking that. I ended up taking a job in uh, what was a branch of the ESB at the time, working in uh, IT infrastructure, how they pass messages around, which actually turned out to be very similar to how meteorological messages get passed around the world today. Uh, and then the, the opportunity for the job in Metair and kind of came up after a second master's in meteorology and uh, really uh, had a lot of interest in it. It kind of suited my background very well as well. So uh, I made the decision to, to join Metair and my first posting was a surprise to me, uh, which was down at uh, Carseveen in County Kerry. So you had been assigned
1: to uh, the Lancia Observatory. Were you aware of its Significance before we went down there because it has this history as being a really important uh, weather location.
2: Yeah, so I would have been familiar with the name from the likes of the Sea Area forecasts and so forth. I mean, Valencia has a really kind of uh, it's a standout site for all around the UK and Ireland. So from that point of view, I would have been familiar with it, but I had no idea of the level of significance, where exactly it was, uh, the type of uh, scientific involvement that I had down there. Um, so really I was quite surprised when I eventually landed up on day one.
0: There's actually a long association between Valencia and meteorology and it began with a shipwreck. Can you elucidate on that for us, Keith?
2: Yes, so it started back in uh, 1859. It was a storm, one of the biggest storms the Irish Sea has ever seen actually. Uh, and now it's been known as the Royal Charter Storm because at the time, if you think back back then, all trade or the fast majority of trade was was done through ships and wooden ships, not like the ships we have today. So there was a lot of shipping uh, industry in the area. And when this storm came through, there was a big ship called the Royal Charter. And the storm completely destroyed the ship and sadly would have lost about 450 lives. But also during that storm and that episode, there was another 200 ships either destroyed or very badly damaged. And overall, the the death toll was up in around 800 people. So because of this hugely significant event, the uh, Board of Trade in the UK at the time They commissioned a man by the name of Admiral Fitzroy to set up a series of weather stations around UK and Ireland coasts in order to start monitoring the weather to see if we can kind of keep an eye on these kind of uh, approaching storms.
0: The telegraphic cable was actually down to the Knight of Kerry, Sir Peter Fitzgerald, but he was also involved in Valencia Observatory, like further down the line as well.
2: Yeah, so he was a hugely influential character in the region and he was well connected. And because of that, he was the one who influenced the transatlantic cable to be connected to uh, the island. But in addition to that, then, that brought a lot of engineers and technicians to the island as well. So, again, it made a sensible place in order to establish the observatory. So, a few years after the first observations went out, uh, the Board of Trade decided they'll actually set up some permanent observation stations uh, of their original 15. So, they started to have a look around the island where would it be a suitable place to actually set up Valencia Observatory. And they approached uh, the Knight of Kerry, and uh, he uh, had some properties, as a, a man of his stature would. And he offered uh, Revenue House, which is one of his premises, uh, as a suitable location for the first Valencia Observatory. And so began Valencia Observatory uh, as we uh, knew it back then.
1: And it's still called Valencia, but it's not on Valencia Island anymore.
2: That's right. It's an interesting quirk, actually. So it started off on the island. Um, let me see if memory serves in uh, Revenue House in 1868, Uh, And I was there for a number of years. But in 1892, under the stewardship of a a gentleman called Edward Cullum, it actually moved to the mainland, just outside the the town called Carrasveen. A very large house called Westward House, with its own lands, became available. And at the time, well, as the story goes, I don't know how this is true, but uh, apparently uh, Mr Cullum recently got married and the wife was quite eager to move back to the mainland. So between that and plans to expand the area... I think there was a few things moving uh, in the same direction to try and come back to the mainland. So uh, revenue, uh, Westwood House on Carrasveen was eventually bought and the observatory then moved. When I say moved, it was only about five kilometres away. But when I say moved, they they literally did move house. So some of the instrumentation, for example, one of the things they measured down there ever since 1888 was uh, magnetic readings, where the magnetic north pole is, was very important for ship navigation. But that was done in specialised houses, a wooden house away from metal and so forth. So when they moved from Revenue House to, to, to Westwood House on the mainland, they literally picked up the wooden hut, put it on a raft and floated it over to to the mainland. So they, they quite literally moved house.
1: At this stage, we know that Valencia is, uh, has this importance in, in modern meteorology. Back then, when it was established, was that recognised? I mean, were there people from other countries looking for the data from from this station?
2: Yeah, so quite quickly it was established that uh, the system that they had in place, so the observations around the coast, but largely the infrastructure behind this, not just the actual measurements, but the communication infrastructure was quite robust and they were actually genuine seeing returns. So you have to remember back then, it cost quite a lot of money to send all the equipment out to the stations and personnel. So the Board of Trade were always looking for a return on that investment. And they were getting that through ship safety and well, basic forecasts at the time. So internationally, across France and elsewhere, they were actually seeing the benefit of primitive weather forecasts at a time where if you're on the west coast of Ireland and you could see a storm approaching and you're able to measure the wind speed and the direction, then you could telegraph to the east coast of Ireland or over to over to the UK and get generally predict we'd expect the storm to be with you in so many hours. So this gained quite a lot of traction, quite a lot of interest through the international community.
0: And that was all down to the the fact that there was telegraphic cables in place there at the time. What kind of observations were they taking initially at Valencia? Was it just temperature or... Like was there pressure as well and and um, how many times a day were they doing the observation?
2: So originally when they started, so so the first measurement went out on the eighth of October eighteen sixty that was the the first measurement that actually went out. Uh, and back then it was a uh, rudimentary measurement, so it was the classics like temperature, wind, wind direction. Uh, as well as um, uh, rainfall, but also a visual observation. So was it kind of, uh, was it sunny, was it partly cloudy, was it shadowy, uh, uh, rainy, and so forth. Yeah. Uh, so, so that all kind of came in. So that was kind of a rudimentary basic forecast. And the first forecast, like i say, went out uh, well over 150 years ago. And you'll never guess the observation was overcast. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so we have the telegraph system for sending out this data and... Newspapers then were also a really important part of that. I mean, nowadays we've got the internet to kind of spread all uh, weather data among different organisations in different countries, but the newspapers seem to have played that role back then.
2: Exactly. That was kind of the main dissemination channel, as we call it these days. It was... uh and again, newspapers were, were hugely popular back then, and the people who were interested in weather measurements typically were involved in some form of economy or trade or the marine lifestyle and so forth. So th- these are people who have had access to, to newspapers as well. So that was the mainstream for kind of uh, issuing broadcasts back then.
1: And you mentioned that observations were being sort of taken once a day and been sent out, but then we started to see this increase in observations. And a lot of this was was motivated by aviation. Is that right?
2: Exactly. So transatlantic aircraft started uh, being able to make the journey from America across to to Europe. And the first place that they passed by would have been Ireland. So it became a much greater demand for uh, observations of the atmosphere, not just at ground level. So this really kind of sparked uh, two things. One, the increase in the ground-based observations from daily down to an hourly basis. And hourly observations kind of began from then, which wasn't known at the time, but ended up becoming hugely important from a climate change perspective, from being able to monitor and study the climate throughout the whole night uh, back then rather than Mm -hmm. once a day. Uh, and the other thing that it kind of borne was the, the importance of upper air measurements or weather balloon measurements was going to be kind of a thing that kind of came online then. Because the aircrafts, they're not necessarily so interested in the weather that's happening on the ground, but they're also fairly interested in wind shears and the different uh, conditions up through the atmosphere. And at the time, weather balloons were the best way of actually trying to gain that information.
0: Valencia has one of the longest records of continuous weather observations over, like, a hundred years. Um, can you... And there's some historical events that were caught up um, in those observations. And one of them was uh, during the um, historical event in the Irish Civil War.
2: Yeah, this is really interesting, actually. So, so during the, the early 1920s, during the Civil War, there was a, a lot of fighting in the vicinity of the observatory itself. And uh, a lot of gunfire literally happening over the grounds. Now, the important with weather observations is not only was there was there a demand for them but it was very very important that you every day without fail as we call it get the obs out you make sure you get the observations done no matter what because it was a very strict deadline in order to meet all the production chains downstream so one day um, down at the observatory there was, there was some gunfire there was some shooting actually happening and I it was time to go out and do the observations, and I can only imagine people flicking coins internally, trying to try and figure out whose turn it was to go out and actually take the observations. But quite literally, they 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 went out with a white flag. The, the story was they they crawl on their stomach to the enclosure where we where we take the the weather measurements. They took the measurements, gunfire overhead, came back, and uh, what I love is the the official journal at the time, uh, the the observatory record of it, quotes it as the 1,800 and 2,100 observations were rendered extremely unpleasant by the constant crossfire up the two sides. But again, it just goes to show the mantra in the observation community globally that observations are so important, they must keep the routine, they must go out no matter what. And, that, and that's the same mantra that maintains right up to today.
1: Yeah, there's such pride there in maintaining this unbroken record. And we're seeing the benefit of that now today because, because of those extreme efforts that they went to, uh, Valencia has this incredible observation back, uh, record stretching quite far back. How important is that observation record for studies today on climate change, for example?
2: Yeah, so again, at the time, all these w- weather measurements that were being made, they weren't made from a climate perspective. They were they were made because there was a need to make them at the time. And that need kind of changed and the actual uh, measurements evolved over time. But it was always to address a particular need. It's only more recently in the last number of decades that all these measurements have kind of become vitally important from a climate change perspective so in order to use that we're kind of the community the the climatologists globally we're kind of running around trying to get our hands on all these old measurements that are kind of uh, in dusty old lockers all all around the world Mm -hmm. Uh, and we're trying to get that now because we value the importance of this long record set and see how things were changing at the time Uh, so so the difficulty is an awful lot of the measurements that we have back then that they're all on paper, understandably so, in handwriting. There's no computers back then, and different people had different styles. So there's actually quite a skill in what we call digitizing or trying to type in all these numbers for all these different parameters. It's a it's a huge monumental effort. And to actually try and do this. And that's one of the initiatives that's, that's going on now globally in all countries, including, including in Ireland, where we're actually trying to digitise all record sets, including those at Valencia and elsewhere all around the country, to try and really get that maximum benefit from a climate perspective.
1: I'd imagine as well there is a need to compare the type of sensors that were being used back then so that the data you're getting is actually comparable to the, the measurements you're getting nowadays from the sensors that we're using today.
2: Exactly, yes. So different things happened back at the time. So for example, uh, Felencia Observatory, I mean, it, it moved five kilometres. So so it moved from the island, Felencia Island, to the mainland. So with that change, you would have had a, a slight change in microclimates, maybe a slight, maybe a different exposure to wind and so forth. So, And this is kind of natural. Weather stations do do move. Now, incidentally, Valencia Observatory kept its name, even though it is now on the mainland from Valencia Island. And that was largely because the shipping industry all became familiar with Valencia Observatory. They knew where it was. And back then, the change of five kilometres wasn't really all that big of a deal from, a, from a, a point of view back then. But today, doing very sensitive climate change studies, when we're looking for a, a tiny fraction increase in temperature, let's say, over a very, very long time span, these small little changes do make a difference. So there's a, a branch of climatology called homogenization where we try and actually look at all these changes, either in location or actual instruments. Very often we change the instrument to try and make it better Maybe the next generation of instruments or so forth. So we try and look for all these step changes, and we do a branch of stats and and uh, and, and climatology. We we'll we try and fuse or merge those back in together to get a realistic continuous record set that we can then use to actually pick out these tiny changes in climate over over the centuries.
0: And so these um, measurements that we take at Valencia today, um, they go out um, globally on the global transmission system. So it's kind of so, it's something that kind of predates uh, the internet and there, there, there was always this sharing of information even back in Fitzroy's day um, you know that we'd share that information and um, as as it's become more developed we're, we're able to share those observations. How often nowadays are, are the weather balloons launched for example at Valencia today?
2: Yeah so today uh, not just at Valencia but globally all yeah. around the world we typically launch two weather balloons a day so one at midday and one at midnight and like you say the way the weather forecast works is every country in the world takes weather observations every hour. They submit them to a centralized system and then the whole world has access to that and they can use this this almost snapshot of the world to run the forecast models but these uh, computed models that we run to, to, to generate the forecast the three dimensional models so like we say we also need vertical profile information or this weather balloon information as well so not only do we launch them twice uh, a day but it's very very important and this is this is quite, quite special actually all countries all around the world no matter what their background or reasons they all launch the weather balloons at exactly the same time every day And what this allows is it allows the weather balloons to get a kind of a consistent, uh, synchronised snapshot of the three dimensional atmosphere. And that, combined with the ground based observations as well, is effectively what we call the the starting point or the initialization of our forecast models uh, to go forward.
0: So generally, how how far do these balloons uh, travel and um, uh, how high do they travel?
2: Yeah, okay, so good question. So I mean there's there's two factors there when every time you launch a weather balloon. There's one is how high does it go and, and how far does it go, right? So how high does it go? Well typically these balloons are quite big now when they when they when they launched and they're filled with helium. The same gas you'd see in a party balloon, it's lighted in there and it goes up. But it goes up to about uh, 35 kilometres high Uh, so it really is kind of on the edge of space actually one day we actually attached a, a camera to it working with a local photographer and we actually got pictures back as the ascent went right up through the clouds to the edge of space and you get to see just how clear and beautiful and crisp it is at the top of the atmosphere when you get above that layer of of weather. So that's quite high. That's that's thirty five kilometers is is, is a significant height. I mean, from the pictures to come back, it really is the visually the edge of space, if not if not uh, uh, strictly speaking, technically. So, but the other thing then is, is how far do they travel, and that's very much dictated by the uh, the wind at the time, the local weather conditions. So sometimes they come back down to earth. They eventually. Uh, as they rise the pressure of the upper atmosphere is less the balloon expands typically expands about eight times the size it was launched at and it was pretty big to launch that in the first place so we're talking a sizable object at at this stage by the time it bursts and then it falls back down to earth sometimes with the assist of a a parachute so we've gotten them back as close as uh, kind of the 15 to 25 kilometre bracket away but we've got some of them even back from, uh, from Wales so some of them travel quite a big distance there, w- there was one story pops to mind. Um, we got a phone call from a, a, a rather uh, angry woman at the time. Uh, some of the balloons we launched we also look at measuring ozone and has a little mechanical device uh, inside there and This balloon kind of burst and it came back down to earth on a parachute, but it landed on a, a roof uh, a, a, on a village nearby and The woman was bringing her her kid to, to sports practice uh, and she heard she saw this thing parachute down on top of the roof. And uh, she just heard kind of a, a clicking noise. So she, she got quite worried and she, she rang up and apparently called for the, the local bomb squad. But directory inquiries told her that they didn't actually list the number uh, for the local bomb squad. But how was her local guardie? So she said that will have to do. So a brave guard ended up kind of uh, showing up, got a ladder, went on top of the, the garage roof and uh, and prodded it uh, with a stick uh, and it rolled over and on it was a side uh, property of midair and it fell on the police <laughs> return too.
1: Valencia is not just a weather observatory, it's this earth science observatory really. And you mentioned there that um, that balloon that caused the bomb scare was an ozone balloon. What, 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 is, what is that measuring?
2: Yeah, okay, yeah. So we don't hear about, as much about it anymore, but, but, but uh, in, in recent past we would have heard an awful lot about the ozone layer. And that's this layer of ozone gas in the atmosphere, uh, about fifteen to twenty kind of kilometres up that kind of that kind of bracket. Uh, and what it does is it's really good at absorbing the dangerous part of the sunlight, what we call it the, the UVA part of the sunlight that kind of causes uh cancers on Earth, both in people, but also it's bad for, for crops and so forth. So thankfully Mother Nature has done a good job at evolving that it protects uh, us on the ground level from from most of this. But what kind of happened back in the 1970s was that scientists discovered that there was this this hole or this depletion was happening in in the ozone layer itself. Uh, And that was largely to do with the production of kind of chemicals, what we're calling CFCs or chlorofluorocarbons. And they were, at the time, kind of a, a miracle gas at ground level. They were using refrigerators. They had an awful lot of good uses. But scientists then discovered that when they made it into the atmosphere, they were actually incredibly good at destroying ozone. And then because of the way the Earth spins at certain times of the year, all these ozone-depleting uh, substances made it to the poles, and they really started eating their way through ozone, and they caused what we are calling the ozone hole. And um, So in order to keep an eye on this hole and what to do with it, we have to measure it. So one of the best ways to actually measure this, because it's up so high, was with, with weather balloons. So we have a special instrument called an ozone sound that we attach along a weather balloon and we measure the, 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 the profile of the ozone thickness as we kind of go up up through it. Uh, we also have ground-based instruments as well, which kind of use sunlight in order to determine the, the total column of ozone by, lo- by looking at how much of the, the UV is absorbed as it comes through the ozone layer. So they're complementary systems, but they measure the amount of ozone. Now, by measuring ozone all around the world, what scientists were able to discover is they were able to discover the science behind this ozone depletion. And from this, they were able to approach decision makers and policy makers and actually explain to them, listen, we have a very serious potential uh, global catastrophe on our hands here. This is the science behind it. This is the solution. We need to implement it. And thankfully, back then, through the Montreal Protocol and subsequent amendments, it actually led to the global reduction and eventual banning of most of these CFCs. And through our measurements at Valencia and elsewhere, we're able to see now that actually there's a, the, the ozone depletion has decreased, it's levelled off, and we're seeing evidence of ozone recovery now. And we're hoping that the ozone will completely recover in around the year 2070.
1: That's such an important example of international collaboration, right? I mean we have a very similar situation with climate change at the moment. You know, we have a global problem, we have all the data, and now it's a matter of getting governments to come together and and to be able to show that there is a workable solution. And in the case of ozone, we have evidence that this this can be solved, right?
2: Yeah, this this is why I have huge confidence in what the human race can do when they actually get together. We've already proved that the template works. We've already had scientists discover the problem. We've already had them engage with policymakers and decision makers. We've already had a solution identified and implemented, and now we're seeing evidence of modern nature repairing itself. We've done it before. Fingers crossed in our warming world. We can do it again.
0: There's also... Um another way of tracking climate um, at Valencia and that's to do with the uh, the phenology garden. Can you tell us a little bit more about that?
2: Yeah, phenology. So not not an awful lot of people know about this, but phenology effectively is the, the biological phase change of plants and animals. What do I mean by that? Well, we look at kind of... Uh, trees and grow phrases of trees not just any trees special trees so back in the late 1950s some clever people at Humboldt University in Germany decided to clone a whole load of tree species that grow quite well across Europe and they sent them out to all corners of the Europe including down at Falentia Observatory And what we do is we have observers down there who painstakingly look at the first leaves that occur, the first buds, the first flowers and so forth on these trees. Now, the beauty of them being cloned trees is that they're genetically identical to all the other trees around Europe. The only thing that's different is the soil that they're in and the atmosphere that's around them. And by monitoring the growth phases and the growing season of these trees, we're seeing there's a very strong correlation between the growth period and also the warming world. And while climate models have to make an awful lot of approximations in order to be able to run within relativistic timescales and computer resource limitations, this is Mother Nature's own visual indicator of climate change actually happening and we're seeing that through these phenology records at Valencia but also combined with all the other trees and similar measurements all around Europe
1: The science of detecting earthquakes obviously not something that we consider when we think of uh, Valencia or as a weather observatory but that's a really important part of the work done at at Valencia
2: it is so. Flinchia's full title is Flinchia uh, Meteorological and Geophysical Observatory. So, on the geophysical side, two of the main science programs that are run down there about the seismology and uh, the geomagnetism, measuring the, the, the Earth's uh, magnetic poles. Uh, on the seismology side of the house, we have one of the well, it is the best. Uh, uh, facility to, to measure uh, earthquakes in Ireland because in order to measure earthquakes accurately you need uh, a, f- a very you need to be embedded on the bedrock you need to be insulated from kind of vibrations uh, locally uh, you really want to listen to the to the pulse or the heartbeat of the earth itself see what happens when an earthquake happens anywhere in the world the shock waves actually pass through the earth and refract as they pass through the the mantle, the outer core, the inner core, and out the other side, and it's that's the that's the, the signature, that's that's the signal we're actually listening to, uh, and we have a state of the art facility down at Kerry.
0: So, um, like just for instance, like an earthquake happening, say in LA, like we saw that a a little while ago, um, could we potentially see that on the seismograph in Valencia?
2: Exactly. So, virtually, f- an earthquake anywhere in the world, uh, there are a few shadow spots, but generally speaking, anywhere on the globe, if an earthquake happens, as mm-hmm. long as it's strong enough, those tremors actually pass all the way through the earth. And what you do is you use a, a global network of high quality seismometers to look for the same signature and by determining uh, the different times this earthquake signature arrives at different seismometers you can create a model and find out where the actual epicenter or the cause of the earthquake actually was that's how you estimate its magnitude and its strength and so forth from a combination of all of these things the americans in the the late 1950s early 60s they uh, they were setting up a a series of uh, -of state-of-the-art earthquake monitoring uh, centers all across europe they contacted us and they offered to come over and build us this state-of-the-art facility for free, uh, which was uh, which was quite nice of them, uh, on condition that every week we would send them back the, the seismic trace uh, so they could review it. Uh, and, and that's kind of how our, our, our record set actually started. I suppose, thinking out loud, I suppose it's kind of semi-coincidental that this was happening during the Cold War. And I guess it's also semi-coincidental that uh, a nuclear blast, for example, would have a, a quite a similar signature to a, to an earthquake. Um, that and Even at Valencia, we were able to pick up the signature of some nuclear testing that happened in North Korea uh, a number of years ago. So uh, I'm sure the, the Americans uh, were interested in, uh, in old seismic activity, um, but a n- knock-on effect from the, the Cold War from a seismic point of view is that a lot of Europe developed state-of-the-art uh, earthquake monitoring facilities that now are in practical use for for, for for protection today
0: That's so interesting and one of the other things though that you mentioned there was geomagnetism like what what is this measuring like how is that what's the importance of that
2: Yeah so all around the the earth there's a magnetic shield it's called uh, the magnetosphere it's, it's literally this mm. invisible force field quite quite literally and what it does is the sun releases an awful lot of, uh, of solar wind, which, which is actually highly energetic energy. So you see these great pictures uh, of uh, these massive solar flares. And what's actually happening there is that the magnetic fields on the Earth are quite literally ripping atoms apart and they're creating these ionized uh, gases, these electrically charged gases and this really strong magnetic fields on the earth push them away from the sun now, sometimes those fairly energetic uh, solar winds come in the direction of the earth and for the best part they're, they're, they're rather harmless towards humans but they can dramatically impact the, this magnetic shield that's around us and sometimes if it's strong enough, this magnetic shield can, can wobble and rebound so much that it actually causes, there's a, there's a law in physics that says a, a moving magnetic field can induce a, a current And these days we have overhead uh, power cables that are delivering high-voltage electricity. So you get a strong changing magnetic field in overhead power cables, you can have a a very strong opposing current that can kind of cause uh, transformers to knock out and so forth. And this actually happened in Quebec back in 1989, if memory serves, um, where the power grid to a part of the city actually got wiped out by one of these uh, solar flares. So at Valencia, what we do is there's, there's two things. One is we monitor this, this constant fluctuations of the magnetosphere, uh, from a solar weather perspective or a space weather uh, point of view. But also we measure the movement of uh, of the North Pole. So we know that our compass points north, and we probably also remember from school, if we were paying attention, that it doesn't really point directly to the geographic North Pole. It points to this thing called the, the magnetic North Pole, which is actually slightly different. Right. But the netic, magnetic North Pole moves. Reasonably fast from a geological point of view. So, in ship navigation or elsewhere, if you're climbing on a mountain, it's very important to know the difference between true north and magnetic north. And by knowing that angle of a difference, then you can correct your compass no matter where you are on the earth to find out what true north actually is. If you're an aircraft, all aircraft have to carry a calibrated onboard compass. And let's say for some terrible reason it got hit by lightning and all the electronics went out all runways all have to have this up-to-date magnetic declination or this change of angle between north and true north listed next to the runway. So if a pilot had to land based on compass bearing only, they'd be able to correct for this, this changing declination. Um, and that's one of the things that's measured down at Flenshia Observatory is this is this changing of the magnetic north pole or this, this declination for, for navigation.
0: One of the other things that you just mentioned there was lightning, and I, I thought about it as well, like you know, power getting knocked out, lightning. Do we we have a lightning detector as well down in Valencia? And but when I think of a lightning detector, I think of like a Van de Graaff Faraday cage thing going on. Is is it something along the lines of that, or is it that exciting?
2: No, uh, <laughs> to be honest, it's not nearly that exciting, to look at at least anyway. The science behind it, I find exciting, but the, uh, to, to look at it just looks like a glorified uh, radio receiver okay. uh, and antenna. But the, the basic idea behind it, this is actually a, a, a European network run by the, by, by, by the, the UK uh, Met Office. And the idea behind it is if you have, when a lightning bolt uh, happens, you obviously you can see it, you get the light, you can get the thunder. What it also does is it releases this kind of a visible electromagnetic shockwave and this shockwave passes huge distances uh, through the, the atmosphere. And by listening in on a radio it, to you and I it almost sounds like static but it actually has a particular digital signature to it like a fingerprint Wait to a that particular minute. lightning. So if you have a number of lightning sensors uh, spaced quite far apart you're able to determine or find the same fingerprint. Now each of those detectors would have received the signal at slightly different times. So if you can identify the same signature and the exact time it arrived at your sensor, you could then backwards kind of triangulate where the actual uh, lightning event actually happened and make approximations about kind of its uh, strength and so forth. So this has become very important for um, storm monitoring and so forth, particularly in the aviation industry, keeping a track of, of these particular storms.
1: And you can see these uh, lightning strikes on the MetAaron website. It's If you look at the radar image it's uh, sometimes referred to as spherics, but you'll see this little cross uh, indicating where there's been a recent lightning strike.
2: Exactly, yeah. So, so for the practical purposes you can genuinely see it on the old MetAaron website itself and an interesting fact is that the the, the sensors are actually so sensitive and they're so good at doing their job that if we were to put all the, the little marks on the, the map on, on the website, uh, it would actually saturate the entire map. So we have to set a threshold to only report the ones that are, that are significant.
1: That's a similar method almost to the, the seismology um, that you were talking about earlier. It's the same idea. You've got a whole network of observations and you're measuring almost the, the travel time of the signal to get to your station and then triangulating where the position was.
2: F- very similar, very similar idea. Uh, in fact, an awful lot of measurement science, the ideas are actually very similar and quite basic. Uh, and today, it's the, the novel use of them is where, really where the advances are.
1: You mentioned there that you also measure ozone measurements. In addition to the, the balloon profiles, you're you're using a sensor on the ground to measure surface, surface levels of ozone as well.
2: Ground-level ozone is a, effectively a pollutant, often from uh, cars or elsewhere, and ground-level ozone, if, if it's above a certain threshold, it's not great to, to breathe in. It kind of can cause respiratory problems and so forth. So, again, part of a, an environmental protection agency network, uh, one particular sense would be an affluentia observatory, the country is well monitored for levels of ozone or ground-level ozone this particular pollutant. And if it reaches a certain danger threshold... Um, then the country are advised, or a so that region is a to maybe stay indoors, not exercise as much until the, the wind gets a chance to kind of d- disperse that ground level pollutant or ozone. So there's a great um, uh, tagline uh, I like uh, from uh, the, the EPA over in the, the Environmental Protection Agency over in the States, and it's uh, ozone, good up high, bad nearby.
1: So Valencia has this prestigious history in meteorology up to this point. What does the future have in store for it?
2: Almost since its inception, because uh, back in the times of the the night of Kerry and he bring the telegraph to the, to to, to Island, uh, there was engineers and those trained technicians on site, and then even after the move to the mainland, it, it gained the capacity to expand. And ever since then, it made sense to continue to expand and kind of co-locate measurements and um, uh, instruments down at Kerry because I had the trained personnel, I had the scientists, and I had the people who were ex- experts actually making measurements. So over the years and even up to now, these measurements are increasing even further and further. Um, and and the, the reason for this is because co-locating your particular instrument next to all these other instruments gives an awful lot of advantages. So one brief example, one of the instruments down there is called an aerosol optical depth instrument. It it measures the amount of aerosols in the atmosphere, which are very important for reflecting the sun's light. It's important in climate models. Uh, It uses ozone in its calculation. But, like we said, we have one of the state of the art ozone instruments literally a few feet away from where we're measuring this. So, by co locating these important instruments together, we're able to get one of the best aerosol optical depth measurements in the world. And that's the advantage of co locating things going forward.
0: So, going into co locating um, observa- observations and, and observation techniques, and, and we're actually talking about a new site being developed at Valencia, we're actually maybe going back to where it all started.
2: Yeah, this has come full circle. This is really exciting. So, we Metairn have actually kind of uh, set up now a, a new a pollution monitoring site back over on the island itself, on the, the west-facing uh, side of the island, what we call the clean air sector, because we know the majority of the weather comes from the, from the west over the Atlantic into Ireland. And we measure a lot of pollutants uh, at Valentia Observatory itself, but... Over the decades, kind of, there's been more cars and the, the town of Carrosophene is beginning to expand. So the pollution measurements aren't necessarily perfectly sighted now compared to what they may have been in the past so we plan on moving the vast majority of those back over to the island. We were looking at the clean air sector coming in from the west, and that's really important from a, a European and global perspective, because by measuring pollutant levels on the on the west side of Ireland, in this clean air coming in from the Atlantic, we get a good f- value, a good feel for the background level of pollutants in that. If you go to t- the industrial uh, Europe, they measure pollutants in exactly the same way as we do, but... They're really interested in looking to the west coast of Ireland and see the value that we get, take it away from the value that they get, and that gives them a much more accurate, real value of the level of pollutants they're actually producing there in in industrial Europe.
1: So we've heard how Valencia has this important place uh, through history as a weather observatory and an earth science observatory. Does this importance continue into the future, do you think?
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, never before with the advent of next generation computers, advanced computer models, satellite technology observing the earth, never before have ground-based weather observations been more important for understanding the environment and understanding the planet in the climate challenges that face us.
1: Well, we're looking forward to seeing all the uh, advancements from, from Valencia in the future. But for the meantime, thank you very much for joining us. It's been a pleasure to have you in with us, Keith.
0: Yeah, it's been great, Keith. Thanks.
1: Thanks, guys. It's been great to be here. For our climate summary this month
3: we'll go over to paul moore who has the details on how our weather has been this past september here are the highs and lows for september 2019 based on data from meterns 25 synoptic weather stations september was wetter and warmer than average in most places it was also quite a sunny month the first two weeks of september saw low pressure to the north and high pressure to the south of ireland occasionally the high pressure nudged north and kept us dry and occasionally the low pressure systems to the north brought their associated weather fronts across us however rainfall amounts were low for the most part. High pressure brought some settled sunny weather for several days towards the middle of the month. This meant the ploughing championships passed off without any weather interruptions this year. The settled weather broke on the 21st as the high pressure slipped to the east and thundery rain moved up from the south. The rest of the month was very unsettled with low pressure and control. The wettest place in September was Athenrye, County Galway, with 185.3 mm of rainfall, which is 85% above average. Triest place was more Park in County Cork, with 71.5 mm, 10% below average. The wettest day of the month was at Ballyes, County Cavan on Sunday the 22nd, with 48.8 mm of rainfall. It's the wettest September day since 2010. The highest monthly mean temperature for September was at Roaches Point in County Cork with 14.5 degrees Celsius, which is 0.6 degrees Celsius above its average, while the lowest mean temperature was 12.2 degrees Celsius at Knock Airport, 0.2 degrees Celsius above its average. The lowest temperature and lowest grass temperature for the month was reported at Mount Dillon County Roscommon on the 17th. The lowest temperature was 2 degrees Celsius and the lowest grass temperature was minus 1.5 degrees Celsius. Mount Dillon also recorded 8 ground frost during the month. Maximum temperature for the month, 22.1 degrees Celsius, was reported at three stations. Dublin Phoenix Park and Roar Park County Cork on the 3rd and Athenry, Rye County Colway on the 19th. Globally, initial figures suggest that September was the warmest September on record. August turned out to be the second warmest August on record. And according to the World Meteorological Organization, the telltale signs and impacts of climate change, such as sea level rise, ice loss and extreme weather, increased during 2015 to 2019, which is set to be the warmest five-year period on record. And that greenhouse gas concentrations in the atmosphere have also increased to record levels, locking in the warming trend for generations to come. Thanks for that, Paul.
0: Well, that's all we have time for this week. Our thanks again to Keith Lampkin for speaking with us this month, Alan and Connor at Headstuff and Gavin Gallagher, Joanne Walker and the communications team at MetAaron. Thanks to you for tuning in. And as always, you can find more information about today's topic on our webpage at met.ie forward slash podcast.
1: Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on the webpage or wherever you normally get your podcasts from and get in touch with us using the MetAaron Twitter and Facebook pages using the hashtag MetAaronPodcast, or by emailing us at podcast at met.ie. Thanks for all your comments and suggestions so far.
0: We hope you'll join us again next month, but for now, we will leave you with the MetAaron trad band Kyo, playing two pieces, Dingle Regatta and The Nightingale. Thanks for listening.
3: Take care.